0: your intellect, strength for your spirit, balm for your heart. The Healing and Peace Show with Thomas Schmier, LMFT, where you get wise counsel based on sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and sound science. The Healing and Peace Show, your Catholic guide through the trials of life. Do you have a daughter who feels more like a boy than a girl and wants to have a sex change? Or do you maybe have a son who came home from college last Thanksgiving and shared the news over the turkey dinner? Mom, dad, I'm gay. If you're a parent who's facing or has faced one of these difficult and very modern situations, you might be as if not more confused about gender as your child. Today's guest has a deep understanding of how the road to our modern confusion about gender has taken hundreds of years to develop. She sees the writings of Pope St. John Paul II as offering much-needed clarifications on matters of sexual identity. Our guest today is the coordinator of the St. John Paul II Resource Center for Theology of the Body and Culture for the Diocese of Phoenix. She's the author of three books, including Discovering the Feminine Genius and The Body Reveals God. She's been speaking nationally and internationally on St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, for over 21 years. Born and raised in San Diego, where I live, she received her bachelor's in theology from Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and her master's in theological studies from the Pontifical John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. Katrina Zeno, welcome to the Healing and Peace Show.
1: Thank you so much, Thomas. I'm delighted to be with you and your audience.
0: Delighted to have you.
1: Thank you. I only wish I was in San Diego with you at the moment, but, you know, we'll have to make do.
0: I can understand that. (laughs) (laughs) Phoenix is nice, too.
1: (laughs) At this time of year, it's actually gorgeous.
0: I heard about you originally from Dave Sloan. He He had come to a speaker series that I was holding at Our Lady of Mount Carmel in Newport Beach, California, and he gave a talk. And he and I used to talk a little here and a little there. And he said, you have to invite Katrina Zeno, who I'd never heard of before. She does this great talk on theology of the body and tango. So we invited you and you agreed graciously and came out, gave a talk. And I discovered that you are a wonderful instructor and you use great visual aids and you're able to take these complex teachings of theology of the body and make them appear simple. So that that was a real pleasure. Uh,
1: thank you so much, Thomas. Actually, I remember that speaking engagement very well. I can still imagine the hall uh, and our time together. And, you know, that talk is one of my absolute favorite talks to give, but I I don't get asked to give it very often. I think because it's a little bit outside of the box uh, and people don't really see how tango and theology of the body or how tango and spirituality could go together. But that's precisely the point, is that body and spirit are not these two um, antithetical elements, but, you know, they're meant to go together in this beautiful union and communion. So thank you so much for, you know, that original introduction to you and your young adult community there.
0: You're welcome. We're, we're glad to have you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it does seem like there's something about theology of the body speakers, you, Christopher West, that that people think of as risque in that way. Um, Christopher West redeeming pop songs that a lot of traditionalist Catholics would say, no, those are Satan's lyrics. And he's trying to redeem the songs and the singers. And, and, um, and then you with your tango, uh, you know, you think, oh, that's, that's kind of, uh, that's a sexual dance. I, I, what, what do you think about this theology of the body and what, what's, what's going on here?
1: I think that what's going on is that we need to recapture the understanding of sacramentality. I think that we have um, a misguided sense of holiness uh, and what it means to walk as a Christian and that it often means the separation from the body and the spirit. I know in my own spiritual walk and in many people's spiritual walk, kind of the thinking is, "Is oh, if only I could get rid of my body, then I'd really be holy. Because we, you know, we read the scriptures about um, the world, the flesh and the devil. And we think that the flesh, meaning the body, is the problem. Um, but what we don't realize is that when scripture s- speaks about the flesh in that context, it means the flesh apart from the spirit. Like a really important um, paradigm shift happened for me when I heard Father Jose Granados, who teaches at the John Paul II Institute in Rome. He said one time in a mini course I was taking, he said, the problem is not flesh versus spirit. That's what we think of. He said, the problem or the conflict is flesh alone versus flesh plus spirit. And that's a really important shift because otherwise, how could Jesus say, unless unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. And so the problem is, is we make this division between the body and the spirit, we think that um, that they're antithetical, like I said before, or we think that they are a, a dualism, meaning right their their intention in with conflict with each other. Instead, the really correct way of thinking of it is that it's a duality. In other words, we have one reality that is composed of two dimensions, and so if you have just the body, you have a corpse. If you have just the spirit, you have an angel. If you have body and spirit united in union and communion, you have an embodied human person. So I think that's what uh, some of us are, are trying in various ways to represent and offer people to change the meaning of our embodiment from something that we get rid of and we shed to actually something that we have for all eternity. And and I see that statement shocks people because I'll say to them, you know, get used to your body because you'll have it for all eternity. And I could physically see people react. Uh, but it's true. Our soul, our spirit has an eternal relationship with the body. If we believe what we truly profess, I believe in the resurrection of the body, mm-hmm. life everlasting. Amen. So theology of the body in many ways is about trying to recompose You know, the human person, our human nature, in the fullness of this truthfulness, that we are an embodied spirit, we're an embodied soul, and there's an eternal relationship between these two. And that's sacramental.
0: That actually leads to a perfect segue to what we want to talk about today. You're talking about dualism, a split between body and spirit, and uh, so we want to talk about gender and gender identity, so-called gender identity, and uh, so you were asked to give a Q, do a and a session on gender identity with, with your, your bishop, um, and uh, so, I, what, what was that? Conference what, yeah, what, what,
1: what happened in, in the context of that, which was, um, so first of all, I should say I wasn't scheduled to do the Q&A. Um, our keynote speaker was scheduled to do that, and he um, came up sick. So I had to pinch hit at the last moment. Um, so it was a, it's a little bit intimidating doing a Q- So I read his, the text of his talk, and then Bishop Olmsted and I did the Q&A together. It's a bit intimidating doing a Q&A after a talk that is not your own. So that was the context. And the very first question uh, was a young adult man, who, you know, stumbled around a little bit in trying to phrase his question. And then it finally, at the end, I, and all the while I'm praying, praying, praying. And then at the end, he finally said, you know what? I don't understand how we got so fast to where we are today. And then the light bulb went on um, because I have a, um, a, a wonderful talk that has taken me years to put together, but it's called From Nominalism to Nietzsche, How the West Got Rid of Human Nature. And so I, was, I had just given that talk um, six days before. So fortunately, I was able to kind of just run through the highlights in my mind um, with him. Because what I find, and often this is what I hear, is people will say, OK, the, the roots of what we're struggling with today in terms of um, this kind of um, expansion of sexual activity and this idea now of the language of sexual identity and gender identity, most people will say it, you know, has its roots in the sexual revolution of the 1960s, um, and actually, it has its roots um, all the way back about 700 years. And when people hear that, they're pretty shocked uh, because they really had no idea that this kind of thinking about the relationship between the body and the spirit, but also the relationship between the human person and God, that that has been shifting. For about seven hundred years, or sometimes they say it's been brewing. Uh, you know, San Diego is the microbrewery capital, right, of the United States. So, you know, it's been brewing for years.
0: Tasting beer, <laughs> yeah, the nasty, ta- nasty tasting beer of Marxism. I know that's where you end, but that's not where you start. Uh, you, you start with uh, nominalism, and can you talk to us about that? You have this concept of God's big will.
1: Yes, I'd be happy to, because, again, I find for most people, and no fault of their own, most people have never heard the word nominalism. uh, But I think of nominalism, uh, it's really the instigator. Uh, So it's where Western thought, Western philosophical, theological thought started getting off track. So if you think about an ocean liner who's traveling from England, let's say, to um, Baltimore, Maryland, um, and, and they start off from England. And let's say that from the beginning, the captain makes a mistake and gets off track three degrees. That doesn't sound like much, but over the course of thousands of miles across the ocean, he's not going to end up uh, in Baltimore. He's going to end up somewhere he didn't want to go. Well, that's kind of the way we can think of nominalism is it starts us getting off by, you know, three degrees. So what is it? Um, I don't know if you've ever met someone, I certainly have, who when you meet them, you kind of notice that they have a big nose. Um, And and when you're talking to them, you know, you try to look at their eyes, you try to look at other elements of their face, but you just can't help but notice they have a big well, a big nose. Um, It's the way I like to think of nominalism. So nominalism um, starts in the 1300s, and it's a response to the medieval mm, development of theology particularly as seen kind of reaching its culmination in thomas aquinas uh, which was very complicated uh, very structured had many layers of meaning to it and so there was and was focused on um, the intellect and so there was kind of this desire to make theology a little bit more simple and also to bring um the heart, which is represented by the will, you know, back into central focus. And so, the person who did this was William of Ockham. Um, but you know, simplified down, what happened is William of Ockham and nominalism. Um, he had he had a struggle, and his struggle was uh, trying to understand how God's will could be all powerful. And so, he he asked questions, and we hear people say this something like, um, you know, can can God, uh, can God take a sinner, a depraved sinner, and bring him to heaven, you know, against his will? And William of Ockham would say, well, yes, because God can do anything. You know, classic we, we hear, it. can God, you know, create a rock too big that he can't lift? And But William of Ockham would say, yes, because God's will can do anything. Uh, and so what happened then was this struggle with, okay, if God's will is all-powerful, And if created things have something called a nature, and we're used to talking about natures, like, you know, a dog has a nature, a tree has a nature, an acorn has a nature, coffee has a nature, surfing has a nature. Um, Well, maybe not so much surfing, but a surfboard has a nature. Um, And what that means is when something has a nature, it has an interior organizing structure that makes it what it is. Why am I a human person? Because I have a body that's united to a spirit, to a soul. And that creates my distinctiveness of who I am, of of what my nature is. And Occam's struggle was that if things have a nature, and when something has a nature, that means it unfolds. We say it naturally unfolds in in a certain plan, right? From the moment of my conception, um, I unfolded as Uh, a female human person. I didn't unfold as a dolphin because my nature has the blueprint to unfold as a female, as an embodied feminine person. Uh, And Occam struggled with, well, if that's the case, then kind of what he was thinking is it handcuffed God's big will, his absolute will, because it meant that, well, now God has to respect these natures and therefore, God can't act in a certain way. So what he did is he dispensed with natures. So imagine if wait, I, I happen to have a little figure. Okay, I crumble it. Let's imagine these are natures. Let's imagine I crumble them, crumble it up, and I throw it away. So basically, that's what Occam did with natures. And what he said is there's no such thing as natures, there's only a concrete singular. In other words, the only thing that exists is, is okay, it's just this pen, mm-hmm. as a pen. This pen is not related to any other pens, um, because what's that? that is what's called a universal. So you and I share the universal of human nature. Dogs share the universal of doggy nature. This pen, in our thinking, correct thinking, this pen shares the universal nature with other pens, which is its organizing structure. But according to Occam, no, this pen would be unique. It would be a concrete singular. It has no interior organizing principle that it shares with others. And that means God now can do anything he wants with this pen, or he can do anything he wants with human nature, or he can do anything he wants with that surfboard because he's not bound by the nature, by the universal. And so I like to call it God's big will, because essentially the only element for Occam and nominalism in God's nature that is important is His big will. What happens? Well, then that means that all the other dimensions of divine nature uh, get pushed um, out, uh, say, out of the circle. So, what about God is love? What about God's wisdom? You know, uh, you know, what about God's compassion? What about God's mercy? So this becomes the problem of nominalism, that the only thing that matters is God's big will, that there are no universals or natures. They're only this concrete thing, this concrete reality. And it can be used um, by God in whatever way he wants. Um, So the reason it's called nominalism is nominalism is drawn from the word that means name. So nominalism means that the name of this pen only refers to just this pen, it doesn't refer to this broad category of universals. Um so that's the beginning uh of but it has a much longer history. Do you want me to go on or do you have any questions?
0: Well uh maybe maybe go on. Well I have a I have a, a comment I guess i I'm, I'm thinking about Aquinas and hylomorphism you know that there's there's form and matter and in that the form is the essence of the thing, and it seems like that—that's the, the two differences. That's the difference here: is nominalism has done away with all that, we're, we're losing the essence of things. Is, that's, my, that's,
1: that's exactly right. That, and if I can uh, piggyback on what you said earlier, that's a great segue into the next into the next section, which is Rene Descartes. Okay. Uh, because you're absolutely right. What nominalism. Uh, does is it evacuates the form it evacuates the essence it evacuates this interior organizing principle from something so Descartes is um, most famously known René Descartes for his phrase I think therefore I am Uh, but philosophically he did again something that changed western history which is what you just pointed out is he said because all we can know about God is God's big will um, and God's big will is beyond human knowledge, right? I mean, like it, it would just be audacious for me as a human person, so i'm I'm speaking as Descartes would, for me as a human person to think that I could identify uh, the meaning and purpose of God's will and therefore what his intentions are for creation. In other words, why He created something, what is the purpose of something, um, then, He got rid of what we call final cause, or in other words, a thing's purpose or its end or its telos. But he also, as you said, he also was operating under a nominalistic viewpoint where there's no um, interior organizing principle or form. So what we have with Descartes is he jettisons both the form of something and the finality of something. So what that means is now, boy, this pen's going to get a lot of good usage. What this means is now I only have the function of this pen. It has no interior organizing principle. So the way that the parts are put together are arbitrary. I can investigate the parts, figure out how they work. And because there's no predetermined end or meaning or purpose to this pen, I can use it however I want. You know, um, I could use it to poke you in the eye. Um, you know, it, I could use it to what
0: it's an eye poker, it's not a pen. <laughs>
1: that's right, that's right. Because because pen, it's just a convenient label. That's right, it's an eye poker. Um, so so this is what Descartes did in terms of he did many other things, but in terms of kind of this trajectory, uh, and one more thing is he said, because he he still believes in God, um, but remember God as a nominalist would with his big will, uh, and he says. We're made in God's image and likeness. The way that we're made in God's image and likeness is the exercise of, guess what? Our own big will. Mm. And so we are most Godlike when we choose, when we exercise our freedom of choice. Oh my gosh, what does that sound like? Sounds like our modern rhetoric. So this is why Descartes is really important because he gets rid of the form of the essence of the inter-organizing structure. He gets rid of its purpose or its its end. Um, And then he says, the way we image God is when we exercise our free will, um, because that's what is um, most true about God. And therefore, that's what's most valuable about us. So that's um, Descartes. Descartes we have to pair with Sir Francis Bacon. Because Sir Francis Bacon is the one who gave us the experimental method. And so you could see how these two things, Descartes and Bacon, kind of go together. You know, make your own Descartes bacon sandwich, uh, if you want. Um, So Bacon then is, you know, taking this framework, no essence, no organizing um, principle that's permanent. That's the key, permanent. Uh, No purpose or end or telos. Hmm, then how do we investigate what something is? Well, we investigate it by the experimental method. In other words, by seeing how it works, by setting up um, an experiment in which we see what the outcome is, which will tell us like what is um what are the characteristics of this thing. And so we begin now our our understanding of knowledge begins to shift. Before our understanding of knowledge was we can gain knowledge through wisdom, through what other people tell us. We can gain knowledge through logical reasoning, which is a lot of what Thomas Aquinas uh, did. This is what we call deductive reasoning. You start with a principle and then you you deduce down conclusions, but that's not the experimental method. Um, And so what um, Bacon did is he shifted now, began the shift of our understanding of knowledge. The only true knowledge is experimental or what we would call scientific knowledge. And therefore, that's where we have to invest our time and our energy uh, into understanding how something works. So no longer do we ask uh, what something is and why it is. We ask how does it work, and what can I do with it?
0: Yeah, it's reminding me of the topic of uh, doing therapy for people with unwanted same-sex attraction. Uh, in the it, when I read what I think maybe it was the American Psychological Association—I'm not sure—but everyone quotes everyone, so it started somewhere. Uh, it says that a therapist cannot. No, no, I know what it was. It was a code of ethics from a group in Utah um, that was proposed. And it said the therapist cannot use a priori reasoning to can think of uh, homosexuality as being wrong at the start of therapy, you know, kind of thing. Um, That's that, right. So They want it to be unethical. Yeah.
1: Well, they want, they want you just to take it at face value uh, as if it has no form or structure to it. There's nothing that organizes same-sex attraction or behavior. Uh, It simply is, and it's simply functional. And so if I'm correct in that kind of thinking, the job of the therapist would simply be to companion this person um, in whatever way this person wants to increase his functioning so he's functioning at a higher level. And the the difficulty is, is that we believe the human person is an organized, structured whole.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you
1: can't just lift out a part, as in our sexual attraction, and you can't treat that apart from the whole history of the human person. And you also cannot treat it apart from what does it mean? Like, what is the meaning of sexual attraction? What's the meaning of human sexuality? So with Descartes and Bacon, and it just really continues, we're looking only, we're moving towards what's the function. So here's my favorite example of this. So I have a beautiful elbow, don't you think?
0: Sure.
1: Sure. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. I <laughs> so appreciate that. Um, My elbow, does it have a meaning? Hmm. I love, I love seeing people's faces when I ask this question. <laughs> no. You're like, I don't know. I'm afraid to say the wrong answer. Well,
0: the meaning of the elbow is to be a hinge to help you move your arm, articulate your arm.
1: Okay. You're correct in the description, but mm-hmm. you're wrong in saying that it has a meaning. My, okay. elbow has a, my elbow has a function.
0: Function. Okay. And you
1: describe it. It's like a hinge, right? I, I can bend my elbow and scratch my back. Yeah. If we were sitting across from each other, I could take this eye poker <laughs> and stretch <laughs> out my, uh, my eye poker to poke you in the eye. Um, you know, I can, uh, I can, um, oh, I can cr- you know, bend my elbows to cradle a baby. Those are all functions. Right. What, what about the human body? Does the bu- human body have only a function like the elbow or does it have a meaning?
0: I know that answer, though. Because I know theology of the body.
1: Yeah, and the answer is?
0: There's a spousal spousal meaning of the body.
1: I love it. Exactly. But you see, we live in a culture, and this is why we have to see its roots that go back to the 600, 700 years, that is getting off course three degrees and then more by saying, no, the human body only has a function. And therefore, what all that we can investigate is the function of the body, and help the body function better. So this
0: meaningless, right? Pardon me. The meaningless functionality of the body.
1: That that is yes. That would be the way to say it, or what I the way I like to say it is that we are simply given raw human existence. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, you come into this world with undifferentiated existence you you just okay so here's another one of my visual aids it's hard to see but it's a bag of legos Mm -hmm. and one of the things i like to do in one of my talks is i give two bags of legos to two people and i say here put them together you got three minutes so you know they, they dive in and it's so fun to watch them you know um you know putting them together and then i uh and then i have them stand up front and each of them shows their lego creation you know to the audience Mm -hmm. and i say okay now we're going to vote which is better and okay how about this one yeah yeah how about this one okay and then i say what's the answer the answer is neither because i didn't give them a purpose i didn't give them a meaning to Mm -hmm. how they needed to put together the lego pieces so our culture is telling us you're just given the raw pieces of your body they don't have a meaning there's no interior organizing structure there's no purpose or end all you have is your big will your freedom of choice and so it is your right and this is what has really shifted in the last five to ten years is now we've put this all in terms of rights language now it's your right put the pieces together however you want to self-express however you want and no one can interfere with that um and so after Descartes and Bacon we get Darwin and and this is another really important piece because again at least with um nominalism Descartes and Bacon God was still part of the picture Mm -hmm. because of his big will um Mm -hmm. but with but with Darwin you know, Darwin's um, specific project was to show the origin of the species without God. I mean, I didn't think about it till someone pointed out to me one time the title of his book. Like, again, he the title of his book is not the function of the species or the usefulness of the species. It's the origin of the species. So he wanted to show how the how. Organic species came into existence without God. So his project is from the beginning atheistic. So what happens then is we, his claim is that over millions of years, we have this evolutionary pattern. And this is important. It's not just an evolution within a species. Like we, we, we see this. This is very, this is, we can even see it now how uh, over the course of time how within a species there are little modifications and change look i was at mass this morning yesterday yesterday i was at daily mass and there's this adorable uh grandmother and mother i mean the mother's probably 65 and the grandmother is probably 90 and they're asian and i kid you not the 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 grandmother is, you know, less than four feet tall. Okay, look, right, that's, evol- that's evolution within a species. But Darwin's claim is that we have evolution from one species to another. It's a really, really different claim. In other words, something can be one species and it can evolve into another species. That's how we get the primordial soup that then evolves into one thing that evolves into another. And the way this happens is through random mutation. So things, you know, randomly mutate. And because it benefits the survival of the species, it's preserved. And that's how over millions and millions of years we get eventually to where we are um, evolved apes. That's the framework that we're like. I like to say we're like apes, but we're just super smart in a in a Um, evolutionary viewpoint so it's very important to understand that there's there's a difference between Darwinism and evolution that you have to understand when someone says evolution are they talking just within the species are they actually talking interspecies Mm. what this means then is that uh, is that evolution is that evolution Darwin Darwinistic evolution is arbitrary again there, there's no interior organizing principle that's permanent because, you know, if I once was an ape and now I'm a human being, well, then, you know, everything has, if many things have changed. The, the only thing that's permanent is my existence, um, you know, and maybe that, okay, I have four limbs and, and eyes. I mean, there's some characteristics, but what distinguishes me as a human being is different than what distinguishes an ape. Otherwise, you'd call me an ape, and I wouldn't really appreciate that. So, um, so what Darwin does then is he introduces this idea of the arbitrariness to uh, to what we see, and that what what organizing the organizing principle of reality then is random mutation and survival of the species. Okay, how are we doing so far?
0: Pretty good, pretty good. So um, I know you go from Darwinism, which kind of takes out takes God away as the initial ca- causal force behind That's everything.
1: exactly right. That's right. So now we don't we don't need God because we can show how things came into being and change. That's right. So God is eliminated.
0: And then from there we're starting to lose God here. So Nietzsche would be next.
1: Yes. I mean, obviously there's a little bit of a gap in time, but he is kind of, for me, the next big player in, um, in this lineup of um, thinkers that radically change uh, Western history and Western thinking. Uh, So Nietzsche, I think it's important to realize um, that Nietzsche Nietzsche's intentions were very good. Uh, I have a favorite. One of my favorite sayings is right impulse, wrong solution. Mm. You know, we see it all the time. And Mm -hmm. Nietzsche Nietzsche had very good um, intentions. So he's in uh, Germany. I can't remember. I think it's the 19th century, so 1800s. And it's very important to realize that he's in Germany because Germany is the birthplace of Uh, luther and protestantism and by the way luther was a nominalist so luther was um, uh, consumed by god's big will and therefore the punishment so you when when you reread luther through a nominalistic lens you can understand why he arrived at some of the conclusions he did Mm
0: -hmm. for instance
1: this idea that um, faith and no good works uh, because that preserves the fact that it's only god who acts I I mean, it makes tons of sense. Um, That's another another talk, um, which I don't have, but I'd love to hear someone else give. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, Nietzsche then uh, is being raised in Germany in in which there is an understanding of God um, that is described as a psychological projection. So we take everything that is good, true, noble, beautiful about the human person, and we project that onto God, and doing so that leads the human person feeble, and weak, um, and uh, without much human agency, because the thinking is, the weaker and more feeble and more miserable and more shame filled I am, then the more glory God God gets, because when He acts, it's obvious what He has done. I mean, okay, just listen to some you know, lyrics in some of our current uh, worship songs. You know, they talk about, you know, I, I, I was um, in so much shame, you know, I I was worthless and that you came along and saved me. Okay, this is kind of what was, um, what Nietzsche was steeped in, like a tea bag, steeping in water. Okay, this was the water that Nietzsche was steeped in and he just thought, You know, that doesn't do the human person justice. So he just said, so that's why he's the one who famously said, God is dead and we have killed him. And we hear that and we think, oh, how awful. But can I tell you something, Thomas? If that was the understanding of God that I was steeped in all around me, I would want to kill that understanding of God, too because you know what it is it's actually an act of survival to kill this god who all he wants is this frail pathetic human i don't know i don't i don't know what do you even call it you know withered i don't know withered something you know it's hard you know hardly human Mm um and 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 so Nietzsche actually thought that what he was proposing was an act of courage and, and an act of defense on behalf of the nobility of our human nature or our, our excuse me, on behalf of our humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why he said God is dead and we have killed him and it took off like wildfire, Um, because the other thing he did, and now we can see this kind of golden thread, is if in this understanding of God is, um, uh, you know, the best of everything that's human, and we're the worst of everything that's human, uh, and we have no human agency, meaning we have no ability to act on our world and make an impact, then Nietzsche, what does he do? He retrieves back again this idea of the importance of the will. And so this is where we get from Nietzsche, the phrase will to power, because he's saying that, again, what distinguishes us is our big will, Mm -hmm. is the fact that we can act on the world around us and we can have an impact and we need to take responsibility for this. Now, please hear me right. I'm not making a one to one comparison between Nietzsche and Jordan Peterson, but you can hear um elements of Nietzsche in Dr. Jordan Peterson, because he's talking specifically about regaining humanity's backbone. Look, he talks about lobsters, right? And how lobsters because they have serotonin, they stand up straight. And it gives them a higher place in the hierarchy and they stand up and they exercise, you know, their ability um, to make decisions. Well, Dr. Peterson is trying to remind us, hello. Like, we're not victims. You, know, we are we are human persons who have this profound power within us of not only choosing but responsibility. And so Nietzsche is the one who, again, kind of reintroduced that into Western thought, but now under this atheistic um, banner. Uh, and then the other thing that he did that's really important for our understanding that this is discussion, is he said that there's um he said that choice is that reality exists on a spectrum. So there's no good and evil. And the phrase he coined is that we go beyond good and evil because good and evil are binary. Again, it's a du- it's a dualism. Mm-hmm. and and really, what's true is, we we live on a spectrum and on that spectrum it's beyond good and evil so this we can see i mean are you seeing the connection tell me what connection you might be seeing
0: i know uh because i've read your blog i never would have come to it by myself but it is clear once you say it and and i was taught it too uh sadly um that there is no binary sexes there's Instead of male and female, now we have six million gradations between male and female. I think that's, that's right. Going with it.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. That Now we have a spectrum of choices and, uh, and, we, and we can make no judgment on those spectrum of choices of what's good and what's evil. In other words, what's better and what's bad. Uh, And this is really, really, really dangerous uh, because how do you organize a society uh, when you have uh, no ability to make valid judgments about this behavior is right and this behavior is wrong? But often the piece that's missing is that morality, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil is based on human nature. remember what is what have we been doing so now if we're in the 1800s and we started in the um, 1300s 500 years now we are really getting we we've arrived more or less at getting rid of human nature that okay we're and this is why darwin is important this idea that it's arbitrary right if if the components of human existence can be put together one way and that's arbitrary well why can't they be put together another way? Mm-hmm. Because again, there, there's no nature that is organizing uh, this, the components, and there's no end. There's no purpose, Right? Mm-hmm. there's no meaning that is directing this reality toward an actual final end.
0: So with, what? It's clicking. It's clicking a little Yeah, bit. like uh, sex changes, right? It's, we can, we can change things because there's a, it's just functionality and we can do our experiments and it's everything you've been talking about. Um, And there's no essence. We've lost the ontology, the being of what is a human person? What's their nature? And human nature is built on, I mean, the natural law is built, is talking about human nature, human natural law. But it's right. know what a human nature is, then good and evil has gone out the door.
1: That's right, because what, and this is where it's really important that we make a distinction that something is good and bad, not just because God says so. Do you see that's back to a nominalist understanding of God or because the church says so, right? You got to follow the law. Well, it's important to follow the law, but it's even more important to understand what the law is based on. And the law is based on what will bring, and this is where your, this is where your work comes into play. Um, morality, good and bad, good and evil, right and wrong, is based on what will bring my human nature to its fullest flourishing. What will bring my human nature to the fullness? Look, um, St. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is not man as this pathetic, impoverished little peon. No, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. That means it's our human nature moving in growth and maturity toward its ultimate end. And and that's that's what we have to recapture. So something is good because it helps to actualize capacities within my human nature that have the um, ability to grow and mature and expand. Something is bad if it diminishes my ability to grow, to expand, for my human nature to reach its fullest capacity. Now, the problem is, is you can take that same language of growth and maturity and you can apply it to our modern situation and saying, well, someone, you know, is uh, a, um, a, a boy trapped in a girl's body. And so in order for this person to flourish, you know, you have to change the body. But the problem is, is that destroys the integrity of human nature. The fact that it's not arbitrary that this person just happened to have a, bo- a, bo- um, a boy trapped in a girl's body, just happened to have a girl body. Mm-hmm. That's not arbitrary because remember body and spirit. So is our, our humanity is an integral whole of body and spirit. So it's not like I can extract my soul or my spirit out of a um out of a girl's body and put it in a man's body. I it, it right. I, I mean we can do that, but what you've done is you've done violence. You've done harm mm. to the human person. And this is a this is an important shift. I try really hard to to always use the word human person. Because if we're talking about just raw human existence, well, then, yeah, Okay, right. let's just let's swap out this component for that component. OK, let's upgrade this part. Um, let, let's, you know, let's insert um, this enhancement so you can see how this thinking about my body is just raw material. It, it's not only present just in um, transitioning from you know, one sexual sexual bod- body to another sexual body, from a, fe- a female body to a male body. It's, um, what, can, what can we say? It's present, kind of, it saturates our whole understanding of human existence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, Nietzsche has a lot to do with it in the sense of this idea of moving beyond good and evil, um, and be- that all choices, the way I say it is, all choices are equal and there's no such thing as um, as good and bad. There's only personal preference because if I have no nature, then everything I choose is a preference. And how dare you tell me what my preference would be? It would be as if I said to, you know, Thomas, you really should choose pistachio ice cream.
0: <laughs> and,
1: and what would you say to me?
0: I'd say that happens not to be my favorite. I will not. Thank you.
1: Yeah, exactly. So if everything is a preference, we really have to understand this is how people hear what we say when we say um, that um, you should or you ought to or you are created as a woman in a woman's body. And it's not a preference. It's very, you know, people, I can understand why they rail against us. Because they think that we're trying to impose our preference on
0: people, exactly.
1: and actually, what we're trying to do is reintroduce people to the structure of reality right. as it is.
0: And and we are not the owners of reality. Reality precedes what I think about it.
1: That's it. But the problem is, is with Darwin
0: yeah.
1: that that got, that got jettisoned. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. You are. You are the origin you know, of reality, it, whatever your self-perception is, whatever, only you can give meaning to something. Things don't have an objective meaning, right? My body is just a function, just like my elbow. Um, so this way, it's really quite complicated. Yeah. Um, it, it really, really is. And again, so I understand why we feel kind of like we're confused. It's hard to even kind of get a toehold in terms of understanding what's going on um, and it it seems so much simpler just to say oh yeah it started in the 60s with the sexual revolution because then that says it's just about sexual behavior and if we can change people's sexual behavior then we'll win and yep. that that is very short-sighted what needs to ha- happen is this recapturing of human nature made for union and communion so i know we have to wind down so i'm going to bring my favorite visual aid in right union and communion through a total gift of self in love Mm -hmm. Uh, so we we've spent a long time kind of diagnosing the problem but what's the solution and this is the solution why are why are we created male and female it's because the masculine and feminine body the meaning of it Says, I made for a total gift of self, and that total gift of self includes all of me, including my body, in this one flesh sexual union. So it's actually really unbelievable the meaning of the male and the female body because it's beyond function. Okay, so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna borrow from Nietzsche, hmm. it's beyond function, it's meaning. Because if the function of the male and female body is only survival of the species or to procreate, well, as soon as we can do that in the laboratory like we can now, well, then the meaning of the body has disappeared. But the meaning of the body is my body expresses my person. Can you see my soul without my body, Thomas?
0: No.
1: Okay, good answer. Of -hmm. course not. Right, so we're back to sacramentality. I have an invisible dimension to myself, so do you. This way, talking on the phone is not the same as skyping. Mm-hmm. So skyping is like and facetiming has just taken off because we love seeing the person. Your body expresses your person. Okay, okay, I know I'm very expressive. All right, my body expresses you know my person, my interiority. Mm-hmm. So in the sexual one flesh union, it's the it's the only way in which the human person can give everything of themselves look a man and a man can never make a total gift of themselves to each other a woman and a woman i as a mother i can never make a total gift of myself to my son right a teacher it, it you know we say it's immoral
0: right if
1: a teacher right tries to make a total gift of herself to a student
0: we'll say that
1: <laughs> pardon me i said um, i think,
0: still say, I think that.
1: People still say that so it's really important that it's not like we're isolating out one group no, no, what distinguishes marriage is not an emotional commitment to each other or compa- emotional companionship. What distinguishes marriage is the, the fact that the male and female body can make this total gift of self to each other that holds nothing back and that experiences a knowledge of the other. John Paul calls it conjugal knowledge. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. You can experience a conjugal knowledge. Look, you're married. You know your wife in a way that no one else ever will. It's beautiful. That's the meaning. You encounter the deepest meaning of who she is when the two of you mutually indwell each other. And if I could just wrap this up, where do we experience that with God? We experience that in the Eucharist. So I want to be really clear. I'm not saying the Eucharist is a sexual union with God, but if we really believe the Eucharist is the body of Christ and I receive, I mean, why do some of us, are we crazy enough that we try to make it to mass every day? I mean, you know, that, that's, that's pretty extreme. It's because in my holy communion, I receive the body of Christ into my body and the two are no longer two, but they are one flesh. And so in that moment, I experience the ultimate purpose of what my body was created for. Ultimately, every person, and this is the good news of Catholicism and Christianity, ultimately, every person is created for one flesh, holy union and communion with the body of Christ in their bodies. Okay, this is what we lose. When we start saying, okay, you can be any gender that you want. When we start saying that, Sexual married love doesn't have to be between a man and a woman. When we start saying, no, you can change from, you know, being um, a boy to being a girl. But, you know, okay, it's whatever your preference is. We lose the deepest, deepest meaning of our human nature, intentionally created by God, not arbitrary, but intentionally created by. Look, isn't it amazing? God created us from the beginning for one flesh union and communion with him. I mean, that's it. That's what human nature is made for.
0: I'm blown away. I've never heard it all put together exactly like that before. And it it moved me. It almost gave me chills in a positive way. It's really beautiful. I know we didn't have time to get to the Marx part, and that'd be going backwards if we did that. Um, But if people want to find it, um, do, you, do you know your blog uh, URL off, offhand? Um,
1: yeah, it's very easy, actually, to find my blog. My blog is called TOB Tuesdays. Uh, and it's on my, uh, I work for the Diocese of Phoenix. So it's on my diocesan um, webpage. And the address is www, of course, but TOB, like Theology of Body, TOBCenter.org. And it'll bring up the homepage, and you can just click on the right-hand side on TOB Tuesday's blog. Um, I also have a professional Facebook page um, under TOB Speaker, um, Katrina Zeno, and sometimes I post it on there. But the best way is tobcenter.org. And then I also have my own personal website, which is uh, katrinazeno.com. But it's a little... Uh, neglected. Let's just put that away because because I'm doing these things and I'm developing these thoughts. and it's a lot of work. It's a lot of thinking. So my poor web page is quite neglected. but you know, they can find. and then I have a YouTube channel. Uh, if you just search on YouTube on Katrina Zeno and click on the channel, um, there are a number of different talks on there. So th- that would be ways for people to kind of um, have more access to my thinking. But my blog is definitely where I've been developing this line of thought that we've been talking about because um it's not so simple
0: which of your books would just have maybe the most basic uh, understanding of theology of the body
1: well my book discovering the feminine genius has the most basic understanding because i use my own personal story um, as a platform uh, to illustrate theology of the body principles uh, and so it's it's a it's an entry level book, and I really say it really is for a, any woman, um single, married, widow, religious, uh, pretty much, I'd say eighteen and over. Uh, so I think of discovering the feminine genius as appetizers of theology of the body. And then my book, The Body Reveals God, uh, is the like six seven course meal. Uh, and I actually walk people through theology of the body uh, and the different um, what I call panels, so the the different, concepts and language that John Paul II presents. Um, People have been asking me, well, where can I read what you're talking about? And the answer is, I started a book two years ago that has a lot of this in it, but then got really busy. Um, And so it's, you know, it's in the works, but that's why I point people to my blog because Mm -hmm. that's where I've been kind of working out more publicly um, these thoughts on why male and female. Um, and then they can always um, email, email me. Uh, my uh, professional email um, address is speaker at gmail.com. So really easy, speaker at gmail.com. And I have, I'm the publisher for Discovering the Feminine Genius and the Body Reveals God. So it'll be, it's much easier if they just email me than go through Amazon. Because then I have to send it to Amazon and Amazon sends it to them.
0: I, yeah, makes sense. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. Oh,
1: but great, it's been great. great. Yes. Yeah, I feel like we, we rode a couple pretty big waves there.
0: So it was pretty intense. It's a lot of thinking. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing your sort of a, a little portion of history of philosophy and how it ties into the theology of the body. Uh, thank you so much, Katrina Zeno. No,
1: thank you, Thomas.
0: If you're looking for Catholic life coaching or therapy services that are informed and inspired by Theology of the Body, check out my website at healingandpeace.com. I offer Catholic life, relationship, and family coaching worldwide and Catholic therapy services for individuals, couples, and families in about six U.S. states and in certain countries that honor my California license. To stay informed about future shows, subscribe to my e-newsletter that can be found at healingandpeace.com blog. And you can also easily find my social media handles at healingandpeace.com and healingandpeace.com blog. I'm licensed marriage and family therapist, Thomas Schmier, and you've been listening to The Healing and Peace Show. Until next time, may God bless you with healing and peace.